Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. We're going to get started with a little bit of a history lesson. This show began a year and a half ago as an extension of our Inside Intercom blog. That's a place where we publish more than 500 articles about our own startup journey and the many lessons, both good and bad, that we've learned along the way. This week, we're excited to introduce our sixth book, Intercom on Starting Up, and this book packages the highlights of those posts, as well as our latest thinking, into a beautifully designed hardcover physical book. You can get your copy today at intercom.com forward slash books. To give us a first-person account of those earliest lessons and share a few war stories and how they apply to those who might be starting up today, in this episode, our Senior Director of Product Marketing, Matt Hodges, sits down with Intercom co-founder and Inside Intercom favorite, Des Trainer. Des shares how the links you take to scrape for customers in the early stage can really pay off down the line. There's an incubator in New Zealand that I used to like, you know, do like 11 p.m. webinars for. And even today we have a stronghold in New Zealand because of this. Like, like you think these things don't matter, but actually it all matters, especially like when the numbers are small, it doesn't take a lot to make a massive increase in your numbers as long as you're willing to work for it. The impact pricing has on your startup's trajectory, good and bad? The problem is like that their top plan is like $24 a month. And I'm like, all right, and who's your best customer? And they're like LinkedIn. I'm like, all right, so like LinkedIn are paying 24 bucks a month for this. I'm like, do you not see a problem here? And how does one about building Intercom's marketing team from scratch? Product marketing is a good place to start because I think great product marketers are great product people and I think great product people are great marketers. So I think you find some intellectual common ground really quickly between those two sets of people that you don't necessarily find when you bring in the SEO guru. If you like what you hear or want to check out our full archive of interviews, you can subscribe to the show over on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're over there, you might as well shoot us a rating or a review. Your feedback helps us improve the show and get new guests and helps bring aboard new listeners along the way too. And now, let's hop in the studio with Matt Hodges and Des Trainer. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Des Trainer, welcome to the other side of the microphone, mate. Thank you, Matt. It's fun to be on this side. Uh, I want to start from the very beginning. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear your recollection of how Intercom came to be. So tell me, what problem were you trying to solve with your co-founders? The story kind of, you know, it starts really with like this sort of first wave of SaaS businesses, of which we had one. We had an error tracking tool for developers, which was like most software as a service businesses. We charged a monthly fee. People signed up all the time. Not all of them became happy customers. It was really tricky to see things like, and you have to really bear in mind, like this is 2009, 2010, 2011, like there was no, there was no Stripe publicly available. PayPal was the way you did your business. You know, frameworks weren't what they are today. Like it was just, you know, a lot's changed in, in most recent years. And it's fair to say, I think the majority of the popular software as a service products at the time were kind of like these like CRUD apps, which was like, you know, create, retrieve, update, delete. So it was like manage your recipes, manage your to-do list, manage right. your projects, all that sort of stuff. So we had this problem where we had all these customers. It was really hard to talk to them. The way we talked to them was very literally, we'd go to PayPal, you'd get an export of all of your paying active subscriptions. You'd import that into like Campaign Monitor or MailChimp or any of those uh, like newsletter type tools. And you'd write a letter or you'd write, write an email like, hey, we're, we're working to improve Intercom. Uh, or sorry, we're working to, it wouldn't even be Intercom back then. <laughs> but yeah, that's old habits. Uh, we're working to improve Exceptional, which is the tool. And uh, you'd ask questions, and then all this would come into your inbox. Uh, so you just like you dealt with like hundreds of user replies, 
the other problems were it was so hard to distinguish like a paying user from a trialist and you had like you know you'd very very really get replies like dude I just signed up yesterday give me a break <laughs> or like dude I quit using the product six months ago you know yeah, and, no context yeah and, and it's coming because like you you don't know who you're speaking to so like we realized like talking to your users is probably the most important thing you do especially in those embryonic stages of a company it's like the most important thing to do and yet one of the effing hardest things you have to do which is just crazy so we started building bits and pieces of things to make this easier. And then at some point in, a, in Owen's head, a light bulb went off. Of, this actually might be a bigger thing than the thing we're actually doing. So that was what kind of began the origins of Intercom. And we, we named it Intercom because it used this, this actual metaphor of an intercom. That's what the logo is. It's this idea of a, a way you can see and talk to your users. And obviously it's been six years since that, but like that was kind of where it came from. Was there a specific event or occurrence that you know, led to that light bulb moment where you were, you and Owen were like, wow, there's a business in this, this could be a product? Uh, there was a few different pieces. Like, one was like a recurring task we had was like uh, apologizing for downtime, for lack of a better phrase. You know, it was, uh, you know, the product we had built, I would, you know, I'll give us a bit of a defense here and say like, when you're building software that lives inside other people's applications, it's just more complicated than building like a recipe app or like a project management app where every action has to be created by a human. When you're inside other people's things, in this case, it was an exception tracker. So one tool throwing millions of exceptions or a million tools throwing small amount of exceptions both cause massive scalability challenges. And, uh, and we used to have to apologize for this all the time. And so we built a little way where we could push a message inside the product to say, hey, sorry about that downtime. And a lot of people were like, what is this thing? This is cool. And we're like, shit, that's interesting. We're like, it is actually cool. And then we kind of realized like that there is just raw value in being able to talk to your people in context. And that was kind of like a sort of moment that sort of triggered like this thing is going to be popular. Now, again, at the time, the idea that you'd build a company out of lots of other companies, and I'll come back to that in a second, was pretty weird. Like in that, this felt like a feature, you know, like the classic fucking you know, product manager guru thing is, oh, be careful to build a product and not a feature. Everything starts out like a feature, right? So I think, you know, today, for example, if you're building a product, you can use a tool called like Algolia to do search, right? They do hosted search. You can use a tool like Layer if your product involves messaging, right? If you want to, like, your customers be able to message each other, right? You can use a tool like Google Maps. And before you know it, you can actually build whole products yeah. out of other people's products. That wasn't a known or common thing in 2011 either. So that was like part of you know the tide we were going against, and like for I remember specifically one early customer system like you know well this is cool, but I think now I should build it myself, and like that is the sort of the bootstrappy mindset right of like you know rather than spending forty nine dollars a month, I might spend four days a month trying to host and build this piece of shit that we're gonna that won't even do half of what we wanted. So like that's genuinely we knew we were kind of swimming against the tide in some ways. We also knew there was a lot coming with us, and that any credible serious business looks at this and goes shit, I actually need this. One whole power piece by the way that I didn't speak about there was like the idea of actually seeing who was using your product was just so weird like Google Analytics never showed you that it just showed you like 87 page views today uh, and n- neither did anything so like the idea of like having understanding who your active users were that entirely was something like did not exist pre that intercom dashboard but when you when you sign into intercom you see who's using my product right now that's a very powerful thing for a product person, for a product founder, CEO, head of marketing, whoever, to actually know. And, it, and, and like, again, you know, it's easy to sort of, like, 
I'm sure there was some random startup that also had this out there in the world, but like it just wasn't a mainstream thing. People didn't talk about like my monthly active users because they didn't know who the hell they were. Now you can talk to them with two clicks and it's just $49 a month. Um, but yeah, th- there was a lot going on in the early stages. We knew like there was a lot of sort of momentum with us and then a lot of like obvious reasons why this wouldn't be a great idea, you know? Yeah, there's certainly a moment of magic there in just simply seeing who your customers are. I definitely remember the first time I logged in Intercom. I'm sure it was a surprise to some of our listeners that you actually worked with our other co-founders before you founded Intercom. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and what impact do you think that experience had on Intercom's trajectory? I think the the biggest, and it's just so important, the biggest thing for me is just knowing how you work with other people and that you can work on them and count on them and that they're going to be calm and cool in moments of crises and you have this sort of longitudinal deep loyalty and commitment and dedication to a style of work and an ethos that's shared you just don't get that doing co-founder dating you know or like <laughs> I'm looking for a technical co-founder to build my project. it's like good luck you might find the modern day David Hanemeyer Hansen of, of like engineering but you, but you might you just not, might not get along with them and it's like the interpersonal dynamics are never tested as hard as they are in the early days when you're pretty much sure nothing's going to work out, but you all have to agree to a shared sense of delusion. So we had, we'd worked together for like years and we had actually, you know, I remember we had already established like, you know, sort of, you know, we believe in hard work, we believe in diligence, we believe in dedication and single purpose devotion sort of thing. So like an example would be like one of our early rules was just like, we don't do anything that's not for intercom. Right. So like as in professionally. So, like, no side projects, no advising other companies or any that sort of stuff. And, like, all that just kind of, when you have all that kind of baked in and everyone's kind of signed up for it, you literally, you can just archive a whole set of concerns from your brain of just being like, well, Dave wouldn't do that. Well, Karen wouldn't do that. Don't talk to ridiculous. Like, you know, and there's other stuff, like respecting each other's discipline and understanding what each other are responsible for and all that sort of stuff. You, when you can basically start a company without having to worry about any of that is magical. Uh, and, like, I don't even know the half of it because I didn't do the alternative as much but I, my heart bleeds talking to people who are like, well, I'm six months in with a co-founder. We're after splitting the company 50-50. And I actually turned out, turns out he doesn't really work that hard. And I'm like, well, <laughs> good luck. You know, how do you recover that? Yeah. So I, I don't know what else to say other than like my top tip, only work with people who you have an undying trust and loyalty with. You know, it's like. I mean, it sounds like in summary, you had a shared set of values, which kind of allowed you to accelerate things, so to speak. Yeah, and like the shared set of values were born out of practice. They weren't like, you know, let's all have a, an offsite and with a whiteboard and try to imagine what some values would be. It was just like, you know, we've all worked together and we all haven't quit. Why? And let's start with that. And that was what it was. I distinctly remember Owen, like Simple Note was the tool he shared at the time. But it was just like, here's what we're agreeing to do. And it was other like practical stuff in the, at the time. It was like, be frugal. Like we, like literally our runway is our life. So protect it. You know, yeah. there was just like loads of like of a mix of tactical and sort of philosophical stuff. But it worked, you know. And like a lot of those traits can be seen in our values today in the company. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit and go back to talking about Des. Uh, in the early, early days, you really were on the front lines of the business, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, well, everyone is in, in different ways. Like, in uh, you know, if you're engineering, like every line of code you deploy, you're getting feedback on the following minute from the person who it didn't work for, whatever. For me, a lot of the front lines meant like I was out there trying to get customers. Like, I literally would spend morning, noon, and night emailing people who had a product that I, I just people for whom I knew Intercom would work. Right? It was just I, I just I know you need this product, and and like I this like, and I still do, but like I really at the time I was very much like, look, we have invented something that you are going to love. All I need you to do is trust me. Install this line of JavaScript. Log in here. If you're not blown away, delete the JavaScript. I will never talk to you again. 
but I'm fucking telling you, you're going to like this. And uh, and so like, uh, if you look at like the first four or five pages of my email account, my Gmail account, I guess, which is now like six years old, but like all it is is me emailing people saying, do you want to try Intercom? Yep. Here's a screenshot of what it might look like in your product. Does this seem useful to you? Here's how you can see all your active users. Isn't that cool? And it worked. Like it worked. It's not scalable. It is the whole do things that don't scale type shit. But like that was one whole piece. But the other piece was like we used to do like a weekly webinar live with me at six p.m. every Wednesday <laughs> in Dublin, where I'd literally like be walk people through not just the actual product because the product was quite self-explanatory. We've we've always had a pretty well-designed product that doesn't need a whole heap of explaining, but actually the sort of philosophy behind like how you think about using Intercom. So uh, one problem we observed is a lot of people are like, "Sweet, you mean I can message all my users all the time? Awesome!" And they just start spitting out messages which is obviously a shit customer experience. So we need to do these webinars to sort of like just be like, here's how you should think about retention and churn and customer engagement, and here's the role they each play, and here's how you develop a hypothesis for what's causing somebody to, to engage, to stick around, to quit, and here's how you can test that hypothesis, and here's how you can improve that with, with Intercom, and here's my suggested roadmap for how you should try these things out. Yeah. And that was what the webinar was. And we used to do, like, I remember 6 p.m. on Wednesdays in Dublin, and then every, like, three weeks you get some mail from somebody who's like, in like Australia or India or somewhere in Asia and they're like yo 6pm doesn't work for me so eventually we started doing like 6am ones as well uh, which was kind of mental I remember like specifically getting up at like 5.30am speeding into work and uh, just going through a one hour webinar and I was straight back home and back to bed again <laughs> like uh, <laughs> but like it, you know even like today you can trace back like I remember I used to do there's an incubator in New Zealand that I used to like you know do like 11pm webinars for and even today, we have a stronghold in New Zealand because of this. Like, like you think these things don't matter, but actually, it all matters. Especially like when the numbers are small, it doesn't take a lot to make a massive increase in your numbers as long as you're willing to work for it. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to a juicy topic that is pricing. This is perhaps one of the hardest Fast. things to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is perhaps one of the hardest things to get right, but is also one of the biggest levers for a startup uh, that can really change their trajectory if mm-hmm. they do get it right. So. If we look at Intercom, um, it was completely free for its first year of existence. Can you talk us through the journey we went on from that point to the point yeah. where we are today in charging for Intercom? Yeah, I guess like there's a you know a few things we really learned. Uh, one would be like free is actually not a great monetization strategy. Like we didn't hit any error or records charging zero dollars. The journey went something like we need to start charging money because we actually need to start making money and. What that looked like was okay. Well, then, who do we charge and how much? And like the the general like ye old SaaS thinking at the time is like, well, you're gonna have three price plans: gold, silver, and bronze. And and you're gonna make gold comically expensive and bronze a little bit too shit. And you're gonna have, you're gonna promote <laughs> silver in the middle, and it's gonna be really really big and bold and looking sparkly. And you're gonna say it's recommend- your most popular. Yeah, it's most popular or recommended or whatever. Right, all that shit. And like the, you know, you can kind of see like pricing's hard. So that's you know, a, the gravitational pull there isn't actually bad in that. Like it's like, look, if you don't know what you're doing, do this, and it'll probably be all right I think there's a few different things going on there like one is like you're almost certain like there's a, like basically I wrote this post a while ago called four pricing principles to never forget and like my thoughts there are still the same which is like one like we started charging a flat fee of 50 quid that advice came to us from Jason Fried of Basecamp and it was actually like it was sharp and blunt like sharp and it was smart and blunt is in like you know you've like you know multi-billion dollar companies paying 50 dollars for a product that they say they heavily depend on which is yeah. definitely like not an ideal monetization strategy either <laughs> um, but it was sharp in that like we were definitely like confusing ourselves and running around in circles and it was just like and like what we came to a piece of it was just like let's just charge 50 bucks and see how that settles in and then we'll come back to this problem and we'll know more like the, the data from the future isn't here yet let's wait until we get that data and then we can kind of base our next move on that 
So in that regard, I think it was a good thing to do from a point of view of getting something out the door. And I kind of just got that perpetual sort of monkey off our back of like, well, it's a bit of a toy. Will people ever pay for it? And like, it turns out, yes, they will. Yep. They paid for them in like in massive amounts and they were happy to do so. Pricing from there, like kind of, we tried to get progressively more advanced. And um, today, like we understand that we sell to different like sides of an organization. We sell to support and we sell to marketing. And we also understand that like there's a difference between a company with a million active users and a, and a company with 10 active users. And, you know, we've we've baked in some other philosophies into our pricing. Like, we want intercom to be used by everyone in the company. That's why we don't charge per seat. And, like, so we've kind of grown and fleshed out our thinking a lot on then. But I think, like, from a startup perspective specifically, like, the things I'd say in general is, like, get a price out the door. Just make sure you're clear that's your beta pricing because otherwise people conveniently forget these things. And then I think plan on changing price. People have this weird, like, for mo for any growing business, you know, the biggest amount of revenue for you is going to come from the future. It's not from the current, right? And that's not from your current customer base. So, so that's why you can afford to do things like generous grandfathering, et cetera. But I do think planning on never changing pricing or like, oh, we've been $20 a month forever. And it's like, guess what? Starbucks increased their prices all the damn time. Why did we end up in this world where people feel that software pricing has to be stuck <laughs> in 2007 where you once set it way, way back, right? And why do we also feel that it's okay to build tools that are worth $9 a month? Like, I genuinely, like, there's a lot going on in pricing, and some of it's got to do with the type of company you're trying to run and what your, like, top-level ambition is and all that sort of stuff. But I think most people who hold opinions about pricing that are, like, you know, you should never change and it should be really, really low, I don't think that they've really fleshed out their thinking through actual practice or application of those ideas. I I do talk talk to, like, a lot of businesses where, like, they've, like, they should have a very successful business. They've got three and a half thousand customers, and they do, like, you know, hosted advertising editing or something. And um, the problem is, like, that their top plan is, like, $24 a month. And I'm like, all right, and who's your best customer? And they're like, LinkedIn. I'm like, all right. So, like, LinkedIn are paying 24 bucks a month for this. I'm like, do you not see a problem here? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like, so you end up in this world of, like, value-based pricing, which, and Ron Baker has a great book on this called Pricing on Purpose. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really good book. Now, it's a bit steep and intellectual. Like, sorry, I don't mean intellectual in a good way there. I mean, it gets quite philosophical. It talks about, like, you know, it has a weird anti-communist slant and stuff in it. But it's, a, it's genuinely an interesting book. However, I think, you know, you have to, at the very least, be aware of the value your product delivers to an org and the buying power of the org to have an intelligent price, right? Otherwise, you do end up with the sort of proverbial, like, the software team, like, their coffee run is more expensive than their core tool. And I have a friend who did, like, a, basically, it's like a developer tool type thing for, like, uh, testing. And there's, like, genuinely a team in IBM, and their coffee run is significantly more expensive than their infrastructure for testing. And I'm like... Something has gone wrong here. Yeah. You have not got an effective monetization strategy, a.k.a. charge more money for the work and have respect for the stuff you produce. Anyway, enough on pricing. All right, some sound advice there. Thank you, Des. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. 
The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So six years ago, you were really heavily involved in product strategy and even designing UX. What does a day in the life of Des Trainer look like today? Today, I work a lot with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you tell me. Um, a day today, so basically I, I run marketing, and marketing is like an umbrella term for a group of functions which are all united around a sort of shared idea of creating and capturing and converting demand, basically. So the orgs of marketing are like, you know, communications. So like, do we talk to journalists? If so, when? What do we have to say? Uh, demand generation, how do we actually create demand for intercom in the sense of like paid online marketing or, or outbound campaigns or any that sort of stuff? Mm-hmm. Content, we run a blog whose team this podcast will end up on. Yeah. Uh, product marketing, which is your team. Uh, they basically own all of the properties that attempt to persuade people of the value of intercom so that they'll use it. Uh, education, who do our docs and events, which do our world tour, which is coming up soon. I'm brand design here responsible for everything you look and see that's intercom. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, a day-to-day, it's like it'll be a few one-to-ones with the leaders of those functions. It'll be a few exec team meetings, meetings with, meetings with own, like sort of talking about top-line hires, uh, top-line sort of new projects that we're working on, et cetera. You know, I try to carve out like an hour or two to do some writing every now and then. But what's actually happened now is people are forever bombarding me with shit to review or to write. And your motivation to do stuff for other people is always less than the things you actually wanted to do yourself, yep. right? So like I wrote that voice piece, I guess, like two weeks ago. But it actually took me like a month and a half to get that out the door because people just kept interrupting me like, here, we're about to send this over to Black. Can you take a look? So, uh, so that's the challenge too. But like, yeah, I think... It's mostly a blend of like what you'd call kind of boring managey stuff, right? Like, yeah, uh, you know, it is genuinely interesting. I love talking about the future. I love talking about projects. I love talking about how we're gonna, what we're gonna do next quarter, etc. It's all good fun, but yeah, it's it's very little like individual contributor work, as I'd say, which means that's why you don't see as much from me, except for the odd Twitter burst I'll go on or whatever. Yeah, or blog, or book, or podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so speaking a little bit more about marketing, um, I of course was our first marketing hire. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious. Who owned the job of marketing before then? Yeah, I think at the time the narrative was we don't have marketing, right? And it's actually interesting. People like to boast about not having marketing, but I actually think that's not really a great thing to say. Now, I don't think we actually, we didn't say it like that. We said we haven't done marketing yet, right? Like we always figured marketing would be this extra gear that we have, and it turned out to be. But I think like people can get a little bit too boasty or confident about the fact that they've yet to do marketing because I think they talk about like it's a home run, right? Like right. as if like all we need to do is hire Mr. or Mrs. Marketing and then <laughs> all of a sudden like the demand will just fly off the shelves, you know? It doesn't actually work like that in practice. And in practice, you weren't even our first marketing hire. We got it wrong before we hired you. Yep. Um, arguably, we got it right when we hired you. <laughs> um, but I think, like, who did marketing? Well, it depends. If you're talking about, that, like, who designed the homepage and who said what was for it, that would have been the work of, like, Owen, our CEO, and Frank, our designer. Uh, if you're talking about, like, who was, like, generating the buzz on a day-to-day sort of basis, it was me. I was, like, writing weekly newsletters. I was I wrote the first, I wrote 93 of the first 100 blog posts that we used to yep. shoot for, like, two posts a week or three posts a week back then. I also ran a Twitter account where we'd share all the stuff. Back then, we used to also share links that we'd read from other parts of the world that we thought were good as well. 
I talked to our customers, I did all the webinars, all that sort of stuff. Like that was all kind of on my shoulders in a sense. And like, we, but we, we never would have called that marketing. We would have called that like just keep the buzz going or yeah. some abstract word for that. And I don't think that was wrong necessarily. I think marketing is genuinely one of the hardest functions to hire in because they're really good at selling themselves <laughs> by virtue of it. But in general, like it's, you have a lot of different challenges. One, you know, not all brands are equal. So not all products are susceptible to the same types of marketing or the same approaches. But at the same time, you're in an industry that kind of likes to define itself a little bit by playbooks and sort of saying, well, here's how you do this and here's how you do that. And that, in our experience, just hasn't been like something that works. You know, we, uh, for either through stubbornness or through some sharp insight, we've decided to kind of do most things our own way. And I think that's what feels better for us. But it does mean that like, you have to hire people who are bringing a wealth of raw aptitude and IQ, an open mind about how to do things, and also like an enthusiasm for the role. And I think someone like yourself actually embodies that for us. Like, but we didn't like the, the thinking wasn't that mature at the time. Like, it, it's hard. And I think most startups genuinely did. They, they think we're going to put a screenshot on the homepage, come up with a tagline, uh, you know, which will be something like you know, ticket tracking reimagined or something like that. Uh, have an email sign up and they're done, right? Yep. Box checked, back to product. And then, like, you know, there's this cynical thing that startups have around marketing, which is, oh, at some point we're going to bring in somebody who's, who's all, like, stripy suits and shoes and hair gel and shit, and they're going to do all the real stuff. But, like, we're, we're intellectually above that. Yeah. Actually, you're not. There's, like, so much beautiful, elegant literature about marketing. David Acker's writing on how to establish a brand. The whole theory of brand architecture is really, really interesting. Really, truly intellectually thinking about how you generate demand and then how you create, capture, and consume it. There's so much there, and you just don't know it. That's all. Yep. Now, I would say marketers don't do themselves a big favor because like, there are lots of good blogs to talk about how to build a product, how to build a business. Or There's very little good marketing uh, material out there. I've been pushing our team to try and help and try and contribute that, but like, there's, like, there's not as many epic thought leaders in the marketing space for SaaS. Right. As there are for, like, say, product or whatever, right? You know, and like, and that that means I think to really change this perception, we need to kind of get people out there who are kind of well known to be good marketers, and yet they're not the uh, black hat SEO people, right? You know? Yeah, sounds like I have to try harder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So to come to a close here, you know, I'm still here three years later, so things obviously went somewhat right. I know a lot of startups really do struggle with their first marketing hire and trying to find that right person. Based on, you know, the mistakes that we've made and the successes we've seen at Intercom, what advice would you give fellow founders looking to make that first marketing hire? Are there any specific qualities or characteristics or skills that they should be looking for? Like, this is one of these, you know, that Paul Buchheit quote, like, advice is life experience over-extrapolated or something like that, right? So, like, I'm going to give it, well, you know, my experience of this, but, you know, your mileage or your marketing may vary. What I would say, the obvious stuff to me is I think starting with product marketing actually makes sense. I think, like, first of all, understand that marketing is not a team, right? It's not just, oh, it's marketers and they're all somehow this interchangeable thing, right? There are different types of marketers and there are different types of marketing functions and that's really important to know. Secondly, you need to understand, like, you know, where, where does your first problem lie? And I think for us, like, you know, we really wanted a sharper way to communicate to the world what Intercom is, and that is product marketing. However, if your app is quite clean and tight in scope and maybe it's very self-evident like so we do expense tracking that's literally what we do we do expense tracking then actually maybe that's not your challenge maybe your maybe your first challenge is like how do we actually penetrate fortune 500 companies or or how do we get all of the world talking about expense tracking or how do we make expense you know you might have different challenges for us we you know if you're in a situation where like you're producing a product that like that is like both incredibly valuable and hard to explain in a sort of one sentence thing to to all of a company your first challenge is like you know, positioning, it's packaging, it's like, what is the product? It's the four Ps, right? It's all that shit. And I think that's where we started and it worked really well for us. 
the only other thing I'd say is like product marketing is also a good place to start because I think great product marketers are great product people and I think great product people are great marketers and I think so I think you find some intellectual common ground really quickly between those two sets of people that you don't necessarily find when you bring in the SEO guru or whatever yeah. that's not to be dismissive of the SEO guru I don't know who the SEO guru in Intercom is some agency we have but but like I, I don't mean to belittle their work I just mean that like there's, there's less shared ground between how you keyword stuff a blog post with uh, how you make product decisions. I think product and product marketing are so beautifully joined that it's a great sort of inroad to start a marketing team from. But again, that only makes sense if you're like that type of product. So for some people, it's just, you know, if you have a mobile app and you just want to like, and it's a consumer app, you just want to crank up demand. You maybe, maybe your first marketer is somebody who like knows online advertising really well. Maybe. I actually genuinely don't know. But yeah, I think, you know, the, the traits you're looking for, like somebody who gets the product, somebody who loves the product, somebody who's, who's like intellectually able to match the people that are there uh, and understands the, the the constraints of like, we can't build everything and we need to build stuff that resonates with the target audience and some stuff will come later and some stuff will be shipped today and all that sort of stuff. It's all good. Uh, they're all the traits you need. And then lastly, I think somebody like the first things you'll do, no matter what in the startup, is like some type of launch or whatever. So somebody who can help help you navigate that minefield. And actually, that's it's a great time to kind of talk about. Like launches are a great test bed for like all of the functions of marketing. And they'll actually they'll highlight all the functions you don't have, whether you want it or not. Even today, like people are like, oh, let's set up a partnership. And we're like, oh, we actually don't have a partnership for us. And right, you know, but like when you don't have like a comms agency and you want to get press, what do you do? It's like, like launches kind of, they're like this perfect storm of all of what marketing brings to the table. And it'll highlight all the areas in which you're impressive and all the areas in which you're deficient as well. Well, speaking of marketing, our sixth book in a common starting up is Hot Off the Press. Why do we even publish books at all in Intercom? And what's the story we're telling with this one? We do the books for the same reason we did a blog and we did a podcast. The same reason I'm sitting in this chair talking to you. Um, Which is, like, we have long felt that, like, the best way to kind of help spread the word of Intercom is by being as educational as possible and helping as many people along their journey as possible. Intercom is, at its very core, a tool that will help you run your startup. Uh, We want our customers to be wildly successful. Most of our customers startups themselves they really want to know how do they get from like one to one thousand how do they get from like thousand to ten thousand all that sort of stuff everything we learn where our thinking is philosophically pure we will share we don't write posts about shit we don't understand we don't write posts where you go off and do a lot of research just to like talk about a topic that you didn't understand we wait until we actually have distilled thinking on ideas and we share them so we've done books on support jobs we don't product management onboarding etc customer engagement and we've done those because our thinking is pretty dialed and we have believe we found stuff that works and we believe that if you read the book are convinced by the ideas you'll be convinced by the company and at some point you'll be positively predisposed to intercom such that when you bump into a problem around support engagement onboarding whatever you might think shit maybe intercom can help and i can the book is like intercom on starting up and it's basically the lessons we feel that make sense at the early stages we're not claiming this will work for ibm it won't you know, like uh, you need a, you know, you need an intercom on Fortune 500 for that one. We'll get there, but I think by any measure to all of our customers, I think you know it's fair to say like we have started up, right? Like so, as in like it's when we begin a blog post, we're like, and now next step is to ask your research team to, and like if you're like four people in a in a garage somewhere, yeah, you don't have a research team, right? Maybe you have a person who's like one eighth of their job is research, so like. I think, you know, it's definitely a, a challenge for us is to find a right voice and for, the, for these people. Um, and yet we have all this material that we know is like good advice for years zero, one, two, three. And we've compiled it all together. And it's like 
littered with stories, anecdotes, photos, quotes, etc. All to try and just you know gel together, sort of the thinking around starting up. It's not the story of Intercom at all. It's mostly just here's the sort of questions you're gonna have as you go through your journey. I hate the word journey because it's been so bastardized, but like it is, it does feel like a journey. Here's the thoughts you'll have, and here's how we think about them. What? How much should you charge? What should you market? How you know? How do you pick your first feature? Whatever, and. If our thoughts can help you, even can even help you clarify your thinking even a little bit along the way, we're absolutely happy to do that. And that's why we do these things. Well, I can't wait to read it. Des Trainer, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.